You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Without any further ado, let me introduce our speaker today. So I'm particularly excited about this lecture because of uh, the topic, uh, which is deals with the country about which we have had very few uh, speakers in the 16 years I've been at Madison. In fact, I can only recall one prior uh, Creek lecture in all that time that dealt with Belarus. Um, so we're very fortunate to have Yulia Braille, who's a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Applied Demography and Survey Research at the University of Delaware. And uh, Yulia received her master's and PhD degrees in urban affairs and public policy from the Biden School of, uh, that, yeah, that Biden, the Biden School of Public Policy Administration, also at University of Delaware. And prior to that, she got a master's degree in linguistics from uh, Minsk State Linguistic University in Belarus, where she is originally from. And her research interests focus on problems of transition uh, from authoritarianism to democracy in East Central Europe and former Soviet republics. She studies democratic governance, civil society, in the process of transition and subsequent consolidation or failure to consolidate uh, democratic institutions. Uh, she works on modern nation building in post-communist states. Um, and finally, she looks at social policy, which is, makes sense given her uh, disciplinary <laughs> public policy emphasis. Uh, today, however, she's going to talk to us about Belarus, and the title of her lecture is Belarus, a country that does not need democracy, or does it? So hopefully, by the end of lecture will be able to answer the question. Please give her a warm welcome and uh, a uh, Good afternoon, everyone. I don't know, can you hear me from through the microphone? Or it doesn't work? Okay. <clears throat> let me try to speak without the microphone. If you cannot hear me, just let me know because I tend to speak very uh, quietly. Um, so thank you very much for coming here today, and Ted, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so I'm going to talk today about uh, my home country, about Belarus, and about whether it does or does not need democracy. Um, within the next 45 minutes or so, I'll try to find an answer to this question or suggest an answer to this question. But we, before we can actually find an answer to the question whether Belarus needs democracy, um, there is another important question to answer, which is why Belarus failed to democratize, because Belarus is not a democracy. Um, so this picture here uh, is an illustration to an extent uh, of why Belarus doesn't need democracy. So this is the statue of Lenin, and it's in the main square of Minsk, which is the capital of Belarus. It's still there. Um, and behind the statue of Lenin, this is the building, uh, the government building. And on top, you see our national flag, which is actually a new but old flag that we basically inherited from our socialist past uh, with very minor changes. There is no hammer and sickle anymore, but all the rest is there. So this is our national flag, the government building, and the statue of Lenin uh, in Independent Square. So the square used to be called Lenin Square. Right now it's Independent Square. But the subway station that leads to the square is still Lenin Square, it's still the same name. 
Belarus is, to my knowledge, is the only country uh, of the former Soviet Union that still celebrates uh, the 7th of November as uh, the Great October Socialist Revolution. Even in Russia, as far as I know, there is a different name for this day, although it's celebrated, but not as October Revolution, which uh, some refer as Bolshevik school. But we still celebrate it as the revolution. We have a day off on that day. Um, and we have Lenin in the center of the city. Um, so for those who doesn't really know where Belarus is, this is the map and uh, we border uh, on Russia in the east, Ukraine in the south, Poland in the west, and Lithuania and Latvia in the northwest. Uh, Geographically, we are right in the middle of Europe if you consider Europe from France to the Ural Mountains. So we like to believe that we are in the center. Um, okay, so on March 17, 1991, uh, an all-Soviet Union referendum was conducted in the USSR. That was the first and the only all-Soviet Union referendum in the country. And there was only one question that was asked during that referendum, and the question read like this. Do you consider it necessary to preserve the Soviet Union, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, as a renewed federation of equal sovereign republics in which the rights and freedoms of people of all nationalities will be fully guaranteed? In Belarus, 83% of, of the people who participated in the referendum said yes to the question. They wanted to preserve the Soviet Union. And in the whole of the Soviet Union, there were 76% of such people who participated in, in that referendum who said yes. But it should be noted that not the whole of the Soviet Union uh, participated because by 1991, Gorbachev already did not control the whole country. So some republics did not participate in the referendum. Uh, so this was in March. And then nine months later, in Belarus, in Belaverska Pusha, which is a medieval, uh, so to say, a forest uh, in the west of the country, the Belaveja Accords were signed by representatives of Belarus, the Russian Federation, and Ukraine. And that agreement uh, effectively dissolved the Soviet Union. It brought the 74-year history of the USSR to an end and declared the establishment of the Commonwealth of Independent States. So this decision, this agreement that was signed uh, by representatives of three republics of the former Soviet Union, including the representative of Belarus, it was contrary to what the majority of the population in Belarus uh, had expressed their support to nine months prior. We did not want to leave the Soviet Union and we did not fight for independence. We did not even have a referendum in the Republic that would ask people, do you want to be independent? So that's why um, our independence was basically just handed to us. And that's why some researchers call it reluctant, or I call it uh, unexpected, or independence by surprise. Um, so one day we woke up and realized that we are independent. The question now was, uh, could, independ could independent Belarus become a democracy? And modernization theory says to us that yes, Belarus had the chance to become a democratic country. So what is modernization theory? Um, it basically, uh, it's a theory about the connection among the economic, cultural, and political changes. So modernization theory claims that um, economic development 
leads to specific changes in cultural and political uh, sphere of life of a country and um, is conducive to specific shifts towards democratic values. So if the richer the country, the higher is the probability that the people in that country will support democratic values and democracy in general and would want to live in a democratic state. Um, and it has been argued since the middle of the 20th century that economic development leads to democracy and is conducive to democracy. And some even claim that the connection between democracy and economic development is so strong that it is possible to even predict uh, which countries may become democratic. So modernization theory is based on the concept of human progress, which in its turn is a broad area of different changes, all of which are connected <coughs> with modern economic development. And you can see the list of those changes. The, this is not all of them, but some of the most important, like urbanization, industrialization, mass form, formal education, secularization, the emergence of the modern state. So these are all changes that are connected with modern economic development and with human progress. So according to modernization theory, success of the process of democratization depends on economic development, and it also claims that democratic institutions are more likely to exist in rich countries, which means that all post-communist countries uh, the, which had their economy on the rise after the initial crisis, they all had a chance to democratize. However, modernization theory admits that wealth alone does not produce democracy. It's not enough to be rich and for, for the economy to develop. There are other very important factors for democracy to be established and then consolidated. Uh, those are the so-called fortuitous culture, which means basically support for democratic values, which should be widely spread in a society, and a strong and vibrant civil society. Um, now, let's look how Belarus was doing from the point of view of the economy. So in this table, you see some of the key economic indicators, such as GDP per capita, household consumption, and unemployment rate. Um, well, Belarus uh, GDP per capita wasn't and still isn't that high, but at least the, the trend is uh, towards progress and growth. So between 1996 and 2016, the increase was very substantial. In terms of household consumption, and household consumption is the value of all the goods and services that an individual household purchases, and that includes uh, food, clothes, rent, or cars, um, health uh, expenditures, everything. Uh, usually, on average, um, the household consumption as percent of GDP in Europe is around 60%. So you can see that Belarus was doing pretty much just like other Western European countries, developed uh, economies and established democracies. In terms of unemployment rate, uh, the situation was fabulous. It looks like we didn't have unemployment at all. Um, of course, uh, Belarusian official statistics must be treated with caution, but even though they, of course, try to present uh, the reality in a better way, but still in Belarus, the unemployment rate has always been very low. And uh, in, in most cases, it coincided with full employment. Because full employment, when, when there is 2% or about 2% uh, unemployment, it's considered to be full employment because there are always some people who are transitioning from one job to another and things like that. So ours was even lower than that. Um, now let's look at um, inflation. So in this graph, 
Um, I compared Romania, Poland, and Belarus. And for Belarus, as you can see, I have to create a um, secondary axis because look at our inflation here. So in 1993, I will just give you two examples. In 1993, inflation in Belarus was 1,190%, whereas in Romania at that time it was 255%, and in Poland only 37%. Both Romania and Poland had hyperinflation. It's, it's a lot, 37%, but in Belarus it was over 1,000%. That was in 1993. In 1994, when Lukashenko, our first and only president so far, came to power, the inflation was 2,221%. This is the peak right here, if you can see. So after that, it dropped. And although we have always had inflation, but we have never had such horrible inflation as in 1994. And this is one of the reasons why Lukashenko managed to stay in power for so long. Um, so anyway, economically, we were doing better and better. Now let's look at, at some social indicators. Um, you can see that life expectancy in Belarus was pretty low in 1996. It's not that high, wasn't that high in 2014, but again, it was increasing. Now, the crude birth rate, which is the number of live births per 1,000 uh, people per year. Um, so actually, if it's below 18, it's, co it's considered to be low. So in Belarus, it's kind of low, but this is actually, again, an average number in uh, developed Western European countries. So we were not actually doing that bad. Now, uh, a very interesting thing is tertiary school enrollment. What is tertiary school enrollment? This is the number of eligible school children who graduated from high school and continued education in high education establishments like colleges or universities. And you can see that in Belarus, see uh, how high the percentage was. After 2007, the ratio of all eligible children going to universities never dropped before 71%. And at the peak in 2013, which is not shown here, the number was 91%. So out of 100 who graduated from high school in 2013, 91% went to universities. Um, also, in terms of urban population, by 2014, over 76% of all the population in Belarus lived in cities. So we are a very highly educated nation we are a very urbanized nation, and also we are a very secular nation. Although I have uh, the number only for 2011 and 12, but this is the number of people who said they are either non-believers or atheists, or did not belong to any confession. So basically, if we go back to modernization theory, Belarus had, uh, in terms of um, economic indicators and social indicators, many uh, traits that showed that we had a good chance of becoming a democratic country. However, let's look at our political indicators. So the numbers that I showed before, those were, so, so to say, facts. And the numbers here, these are perceptions of the people in the Republic of Belarus in connection with how well our political system is doing and whether our government is capable of good governance. So people were asked what they think about how they um, assess the rule of law, for instance, or government effectiveness, or control of corruption, or political stability. And so these are the values that range from minus 2.5, which corresponds to the weak performance, up to 2.5, which is the strong performance. And you can see that only with respect, where's this last thing, I can never find it. So only with respect to polit political stability, there was at least uh, some of the indices were in the positive 
part of the spectrum. The rest is all in the negative, which means this is what the citizens of the Republic of Belarus think about their own government. Um, as I mentioned before, for a country to democratize successfully, economic development is important, luxurious culture or support for democracy is important, but also civil society is important. Why is it important and what is civil society? So civil society basically is an autonomous space which is between the household and uh, between um, the state and it consists of different type of types of collectives which are social movements, um, professional associations, different types of NGOs, trade unions, so this is civil society. And it is considered to be the essential feature of any democracy. This means that if a country is democratic, there is civil society. There, right now in the modern world, there are no dem democracies that do not have civil societies. Um, civil society also about pluralism and diversity, and it has several important functions, such as uh, channeling social interests, making citizens active, and building local communities. So it's an important link between the private sphere and between um, the public sphere. Now, what about civil society in Belarus? Uh, a little bit of history. So uh, formal opposition first appeared in, in Belarus in, in the late 1980s when it was still the Soviet Union. <clears throat> and there were two major reasons why it even uh, appeared. The first one was the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Although the Chernobyl atomic plant is located in Ukraine, but it's very close to the border of Belarus and most of the radioactive fallout went to Belarus and contaminated the territories. So we still have a large territory which, uh, where people are not allowed to live. So everyone had to move out of there and it's just dead land. And it's going to be like this for years and years, maybe, I don't know, hundreds of years. So that was a Chernobyl nuclear disaster and the Soviet government did not inform the people about it. Allegedly, <coughs> even Gorbachev himself learned about it only on the fourth day. For three days, he wasn't informed of what happened. And of course, there was a lot of resentment and discontent about this. Uh, and also, the second uh, factor which uh, was conducive for to the opposition appearance was the discovery of mass graves of the victims of Stalin's repressions. And those graves were discovered at Kurapaty, which is near Minsk, and they were discovered by the archaeologist Zenon Pazniak. Zenon Pazniak became the leader of the Belarusian Popular Front, which was the major mass democratic movement in Belarus in the 1980s. He eventually was forced to leave the country, and now he lives in the United States, I think in New York somewhere. And he has lived there for a long time. So this is when the formal opposition appeared in, in Belarus. Um, however, what does Belarusian civil society look um, after tw almost 20, 28 years of independence and 26 years of Lukashenko's rule. So the representatives of civil society themselves admit that even now, Belarusian civil society is still in, in a formative stage. It is very small, in, uh, and by small I mean the number of organizations that exist, that exist officially and legally. Um, even those actors that do exist, they do not play any important role in decision-making processes or in public policy in the country. Uh, but what is most, more important even, that for all those years, civil society in Belarus never had a favorable environment to develop. Um, let's look at some figures here. 
So in 2017, Belarusian Ministry of Justice registered fewer than 3,000 public associations, 36 unions of public associations, and 31 trade unions. About 3,000 other NGOs were either registered in a different way, or they were registered outside the country, or they were not registered at all. What does it mean to be registered outside the country? It means that for some reason the government is not happy with you and they don't want you to be in the country. So you are kicked out of the country and most probably you have no right to have any activity there. This is what happened to the research institute for which I was working when I still lived in Minsk. So now they're registered in Lithuania and although they have been active for 20 years in Belarus, they're not allowed to do any public, conduct any public opinion polls, nothing. So their activity in Belarus is illegal. And those that are unregistered, they are illegal from the start, because if you're not registered, then you're doing something wrong. So this number, if you add every, all these figures together, it's fewer than what, even with 3,000 engines, like about 6,000, which is extremely small for a country like Belarus that has 9.5 million uh, people. And it is small in, um, with respect to like raw numbers and for 1,000 population. So we have very few public uh, civil society organizations. Now some preliminary conclusions. According to Freedom House report of 2018, Belarus is defined as a consolidated authoritarian regime. And some people even believe that uh, the term dictatorship should be used uh, with reference to Belarus rather than even authoritarian regime. Do you know who was the first person to call us a dictatorship? The last dictatorship of Europe? It was Kandeliza Raiz. It was in 2005 she called us uh, the last dictatorship of Europe. Um, also, Belarus is an example of a country that proves that economic development is about as likely to happen in democracies as in authoritarian regimes. Because authoritarian regimes also have to, they strive for legitimacy. And when they can provide the citizens with some economic growth and some nice life from the point of view of the economy, so they can feel safer than otherwise. Uh, and as far as Belarusian civil society is concerned, it is weak, mostly invisible. It is unable to exert any meaningful impact on the decision-making processes in the country and on public policy. Now the question is, why is Belarusian civil society so underdeveloped. And according to Taras Kuzia, he believes that civil societies, just like nations, are pretty modern phenomenon, and they appear somehow together. So before there were modern day nations, there was no civil society. And he believes that um, if there is no national identity, if it does not exist, then there is no, there, there is no civil society. Civil society cannot exist either if there is no national consciousness and national identity. And I think this is true when it comes to Belarus, because in Belarus we have a very huge problem with our national identity. It is considered to be extremely weak, damaged, and some researchers even define us as a denationalized nation, a nation without nationality. Why is it so? But first, let's, let's see what's a nation. Um, so uh, Smith defined, you can define nation in many different ways. So there are many definitions. I chose this one. Um, it is a named community of history and culture possessing a common territory, economy, mass education system, and common legal rights. 
So it's very important to have uh, common legal rights and um, education system, for instance, not only territory. A common language is not always included into a definition of a nation. So researchers, some of them, believe that a common language is not necessarily an important feature of a nation. Like in Belarus, we speak Russian, but we do not consider ourselves to be Russians. And Russian is spoken in, in Russia, of course. Uh, but a language group is still a basic network of a nation because language helps create imaginary, imagined communities. And nations are imagined communities. So a common language helps to create them and it also helps to build particular solidarities. So um, now let's see what was going on and is going on in Belarus in terms of nation formation and nation building. Um, a short history of, of Belarus. First of all, the question, when did Belarus begin? It is very difficult to answer this question because if you go to the official site of the Republic of Belarus, which is belarus.by, you will find information that the history of Belarus actually dates to the Stone Age. Oh my God. Uh, some people think, okay, maybe Belarus has just a millennium history. But others who are more reasonable are saying that the Belarusians were, even, were, were not Belarusians even uh, by the end of the maybe beginning of the 19th century. But they were not even Belarusians in the true sense even by the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20s. And I will show you later why it is so. But the accept, accepted conventional view on the history of Belarus is that Belarus actually, until 1991, almost never was an independent state or a sovereign state. So somewhere in the 9th century, it was part of Kievan Rus. Then between the 13th and the 15th century, it was absorbed by the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the GDL. And then when in 1569, uh, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland concluded the Lublin, um, the Union of Lublin, they created the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, so Rech Pospolita. And Belarus, or the lands of the future Belarus, were incorporated in Rech Pospolita. And they were there until the partitions of Poland. The last happened in 1795. Uh, Poland was divided between three, uh, among three empires, Russia, Austria, and Prussia. And what eventually became Belarus ended up in the Russian Empire. Um, so until the revolution, the lands of Belarus were part of the Russian Empire. They were not called Belarus. They were called no, uh, 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 Northwestern provinces, or just Russia uh, at that time. However, during World War I, in March 1918, some Belarusian intellectuals, with the help of Germans who occupied those territories at that time, during World War I, they created the Belarusian People's Republic. It existed for only 10 months, and this whole idea was not supported by the population in general. So it was just the intellectuals who decided that Belarusians need their own state, their separate state. To my knowledge, it wasn't recognized by any other country, and uh, in 10 months it was seized by the Bolsheviks. And when the Bolsheviks came, they created the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, in 1919, and since that time until 1991, Belarus was part of the Soviet Union. So this is the brief history of Belarus. And you can see that uh, with the exception of the 10 months, which cannot be seriously accepted as our separate statehood, we have never been an independent country. Um, now, that's my favorite, probably, what's in the name? So what does the name Belarus mean? Uh, literally, it means Belarus, 
which is which can be translated into English as white rose or white rosinium. And uh, allegedly that word originated uh, somewhere between the 12th and the 14th centuries, although we don't know for sure. Uh, what does the part bela or white in this word mean? Uh, there is no agreement what it means, and the explanations range from something very poetic and fairy tale to something more feasible. Like some people say that uh, it means the beauty of the land when it is covered with snow, or the white complexion of the people, which implies as if the Belarusians are the only people with white complexion, or we are the only country with snows, which is not true. Um, some say that it was called Belaya as opposed to like Black Rus, because it wasn't seized by uh, by the Tatars when when they destroyed the Kievan Rus. Um, some also say that it might be a religious connotation which just emphasizes the orthodox faith. But Russians are also orthodox, so it's kind of not clear why. Or that that was the first Christian lands in the region as con uh, in contrast to Black Rus, but as far as I know, in, in Rus, in Russia, uh, the orthodox faith came in where, the end of the 10th century. So I'm not sure that Belarus was, there, was Christianized before. Uh, or it could also mean uh, part of the ancient color orientation pattern, which meant where white uh, meant West, as opposed to Russia, which was in the East, the Rus. Um, however, uh, more reasonable researchers say that Belarus was not a marker of collective identity until the end of the 19th century. And actually, some, like uh, Grigory Yoka, they claim that it, it, it was embraced by the population of Belarus only when uh, the Soviet, Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic was created. Before that, uh, people even who lived there, they did not identify themselves with Belarus or as Belarusians. Now, um, if you remember the definition of a nation, so a lot of researchers say that a language, a common language is very important for a nation. So we also have a problem with our language. Um, 10 years ago, more than 83% of people in Belarus identified as ethnic Belarusians. When they were asked, what is your mother tongue? They said, um, a little bit more than 53% said that it was Belarusian. But that's when the question was asked, what is your mother tongue? But when the question was asked, what language do you speak on the everyday basis? Look, over 70% said it was Russian. So people consider Belarusian as their mother tongue before, because they identify as Belarusians, but they don't speak it. They speak Russian. So that's the reality. The majority of the population identify as ethnic Belarusians, but they speak the Russian language. I'm one of those representatives who speaks only the Russian language. Um, and they don't see the paradox in this. The problem is also what is the Belarusian language, not only why we don't speak it, but what the actual language is. Um, so in the 19th century, the majority of the population in Belarusian cities spoke, surprise, surprise, not even Russian or Polish, they spoke Yiddish. Um, according to the last uh, Russian Empire census, they were speaking Yiddish. And the reason for that was that uh, Belarus was located at the outskirts of the Russian Empire. And in the Russian Empire, there was a law which was called the Pale Settlement that did not allow Jews to live beyond certain uh, areas if they would not convert to Orthodox faith. So if they refused to do it, they had to live um, beyond the Pale of Settlement. And there were many of them in Belarus. 
uh, because Jews, they, they, they were not in agriculture, they were mostly doing some different you know, crafts and trades in, in the cities, so they lived in towns. We didn't have cities in, uh, before the revolution. Um, and the other two languages which were spoken in the cities were Russian and Polish. Polish, due to our legacy of us being part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and Russian because we were part of the Russian Empire. Until 1905, uh, it was prohibited to print anything in the Belarusian language, whatever that could be. And when it was already, when printing was allowed, there was no agreement at first which alphabet should be used for the Belarusian language. Latin or Cyrillic. I actually saw uh, some of the uh, poems of famous Belarusian uh, poets printed in, in, in Latin alphabet, which was really interesting. So a standard version of the Belarusian language was first codified only in 1918. So that was something that could be taught at schools. And that version, which was codified by Branislav Tereshkevich, was based on the peasant version of the Belarusian language. Uh, this version is still called Tereshkevitsa. And it is used right now only by nationally conscious people in the opposition. Uh, they believe that this is the true Belarusian language which for me even difficult to read because you know the, the, the way they write is kind of I'm not used to it it's, it's very it's, it's complicated for me because I'm used to the standard Belarusian that they would teach at schools um, so if you try to write a diploma paper let's say or your um, whatever thesis at the university in Tarashkevitsa they will not even let you defend it because the authorities do not recognize it as a standard version of the language so you can speak it and we know that you're in the opposition to the government, but you cannot really use it in like official setting. So in 1933, uh, there was a reform of the Belarusian language, and that reform uh, made the language resemble the Russian language more in terms of um, grammar, syntax, and word use. And that version is unofficially called Narkomovka because of the narkomat of education, whatever it was at that time. And this is the version that is actually taught at schools and has been taught since that time. So this is the standard version of the Belarusian language. The problem is that the number of people who really speak it is, so to say, shrouded in mystery. No one knows who speaks this language. It is being taught at schools. Maybe the teachers of the Belarusian language speak it, but nobody else. Uh, so what do people really actually speak besides the Russian language? They speak what is called trasyanka. And Tresyanka is the Belarusian word that means literally a mixture of hay and straw, which is cattle feed. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a blend of Russian and Belarusian that doesn't have a written form. No one teaches it. But when you hear people speak it, you will know for sure that those people were born in, in villages, most probably. They're not necessarily badly educated, but they just prefer to speak. This is how they speak. You know, they can switch to like clean or pure Russian if they want to, but some, they just don't want to. So nationally conscious Belarusians believe that Krasyanka is a disgusting culture of Soviet assimilation. They call it a perversion of the language system, a creolized pseudo-language. However, in uh, 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 public opinion polls, three out of four people uh, admit that they speak Krasyanka or use it uh, in some way. Actually, our president speaks Krasyanka as well. <laughs> Now, how was nation formed in Belarus? So we have a problem with the language. Now, what about nation formation? Before 1917, as I have already mentioned, the majority of people in Belarus were mostly illiterate peasants, those who would later identify as Belarusians. And they would, if they identify themselves at all, they would identify themselves with their village or district where they lived. Or they would say they were Russians if they were Orthodox in terms of their faith. Or, uh, 
Polish they were Catholic. How do we know this? This is the USA immigration data. When people were coming at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20s, when they were immigrating to the United States, and they were asked, who are you, in terms of their nation, this is what they would say. Either nothing, because they didn't understand the question. What do you mean, nation? Or they would say, we are either Poles or Russians, depending on their faith. Even the Soviet government, when, this, when the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic was formed, even the Soviet government said that Belarus didn't actually have any pre-Soviet past. And if it did have it, it was peasant, illiterate, and stateless. So Belarusians as a nation, as a state, did not appear before the Soviet regime here. Well, this is what the Soviet government claimed. Now, at the beginning of the 20th century, Belarusian intellectuals who did exist, uh, they were mostly educated in, in Petersburg and Warsaw, and that's because we had no universities until the Soviet regime. So there were no universities. And uh, you know, the ideas of nationalism, they do not come from common people. They don't come from peasants. They come from intellectuals. Uh, and so those intellectuals, they believed that um, because Belarus has always been a land in between, between Poland and Russia, it has always been influenced by their struggles, political, national, religious, cultural, and those struggles did not let Belarusian people to develop as a nation. So the national idea was focused at that time on social modernization, the recognition of the language. They didn't want it to be uh, considered as a dialect. They believed it was a separate language. Um, they also wanted to eradicate you know, backwardness, illiteracy, and poverty. And more than that, they saw Belarus as an independent state as part of the European project of modernity. So at the beginning of the 20th century, Belarusian intellectuals wanted Belarus to be part of Europe. Um, unfortunately, at the beginning of the 20th century, we didn't have the necessary building blocks for nationalism. There was no public sphere in Belarus, uh, no civil society. Uh, there was no mass education system. Most people were illiterate. There were no universities, no industrial base. There was economic backwardness instead. No developed system of communication. Very few people lived in, in, in towns. There were no cities. And uh, there was no critical mass of nationally conscious intellectuals. Even those who were, there were not enough people to really spread these ideas of nationalism. So national consciousness was not a mass phenomenon at the beginning of the 20th century. At the end of the 20th century, the situation was pretty much the same. Because Belarusian intellectuals in 1991 were making uh, mostly the same claims. They were saying that, you know, we need to revive the language, we don't know our true history, we need to remember it, and we are living with false consciousness. So we, we live with their uh, idea that we are Russian or we are Soviet, but not Belarusians. Uh, and intellectuals at the end of the 20th century, they believed that it was necessary to just for us to remember our glorious, wonderful European past to become a European nation. So how could they revive their true national consciousness in Belarus? Uh, the intellectuals, I mean. There were two ways. They could either use uh, landscape and poetic spaces or use the cult of the golden age. Well, the first thing means that you think about a territory and you endow it with some um, poetic meaning. And in this case, they decided to use the GDL, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. And uh, although it was a multinational state, uh, which in uh, different times incorporated different lands of Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine, and Russia, and Poland, 
but Belarusian historiography claims the legacy of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania solely for Belarus. They claim that it was the Belarusian state, which is far-fetched, but this is what they claim. Uh, so we have our glorious poetic past with a wonderful grand state, and also let's use the cult of the golden ages and le let's teach people the myths, the historical myths of what was happening. And again, they found their heroes uh, in, in that ancient past, which was 500 years ago. First of all, they claim that the language that would, uh, was used um, by the Grand Duchy of Lithuania was Old Belarusian. That's true, that some of the documents were written in Old Slavic language, but it's most, it most probably was Old Ruthenian language or Chancery Slavonic, which was not a spoken idiom. It was used just for writing. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that other languages were used in, grand, in the Grand Duchy. There was Lithuanian language, um, German, Latin. It depended on uh, with what population the authorities had to communicate because the Grand Duchy and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was a huge state and it depended on what type of documents those were. So it's, it's, it's not correct to claim that that was the old Belarusian language. It was a Slavic language, but how it was Belarusian. Um, and also they found a hero in, the, in that ancient past, which is Francisk Skarina, who was born in Polsk, and Polsk is now a city in, in, in Belarus. He was born in a family of a, a wealthy merchant. He studied at universities in uh, Warsaw, in Poland, and in uh, Italy. And what he did, he translated the Bible, as they claim, into the Belarusian language. However, if you find the first page of the Belarusian, of Skarina's Bible online, you will see that it says Russian Bible. And it says, I am Dr. Francis Skarina, translated the Bible into the Russian language. As far as I know, he actually translated other things, and he took all of his books to Moscow, trying to sell them there. But at the end of the 15th century, I think very few people could even read. So he wasn't successful uh, selling his Bible in Moscow. Um, but we claim that it was, uh, that printing started in Belarus rather than anywhere else. So Belarusian intellectual created this new national mythology that we were a gatekeeper against Russia, that the printing of books started in Belarus, that we even had Renaissance, Reformation, and the Baroque period, and also that our language is the oldest of all Slavic languages, and more than that, all the Slavs came out of the box in you know, Belarusian policy. <coughs> so that's the new mythology. Well, with all that mythology, in 1991, 69% of Belarusians identified themselves in the first thing, uh, place as Soviet citizens. And only 24% said we are citizens of Belarus in the first place. For comparison, in Estonia, 3% said we are Soviet citizens in the first place, and 97% said we are Estonians, and see what happened. Who, who were the first to leave the Soviet Union? The Baltic states. Um, so even by the end of the 20th century, there was uh, the critical mass of those who had internalized the national identity in order to cause nationalism in Belarus had not been reached. So the situation was pretty much the same, although by the end of the 20th century, we had all the building blocks for nationalism. We had a mass education system, we had, so to say, public sphere and everything else. But still, the nationalism was not a mass idea. So we still have this problem of national identity, and there are reasons for that. First of all, the Belarus used to be land in between, so we were either colonized or russified, depending on who was in charge at a certain point in the history. 
then the Belarusians as a distinct or separate ethno-cultural unit were recognized only in 1919. So that was after the revolution. Before that, no one even, like science did not recognize Belarusians as a separate uh, uh, nation. Then until the 1980s, Belarusian national identity was dissolving in the Russian culture. That's why we were more, Belarusians were the most Soviet of all the Soviet people. They were even more Soviet than the Russians in Russia. So, so much the policy of Russification that was started in the Tsarist Empire first and then continued by the Soviet authorities converted people into, not even to Russians, but into Soviet citizens. Uh, so by the, by the time that when the Soviet Union disintegrated, support for nationalism was still very low in Belarus. And right now, what we have, we have two national identities, so to say. So we have two different discourses going on in the country. One is the so-called westernizers. These are the people who are in the opposition, who believe that Belarus has always been something separate from Russia, that we have our own history, our own um, language, and we need to promote all this and go to Europe. And then there are pro-Moscovite, or those who, this is the official uh, ideology that say that Belarus actually didn't have any history before the Great Patriotic War. And Great Patriotic War is World War II uh, in the territory of the Soviet Union. This is what it, it is referred to. So this is when it all started. And that the most important thing for us is our victory in, in the war. And um, we know that Russia is our friend and brother and the Russian language is something that we need to promote. Uh, so these two mythologies, two ideologies exist, and even two sets of national symbols. So the red and green flag that I showed to you in our national, um, what's it called, coat of arms. So it's the same thing as we had during the Soviet time, minus the hammer and the sickle and the star. Our national anthem is the same music as it was under the Soviet regime, but with different words. And the opposition, they promote a different set of symbols that they took from the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, actually, and they claim that these are true Belarusian symbols, the white, red, white uh, flag and an equestrian, uh, which is as a national symbol. Uh, and they used to be our national symbols for a very short period of time, but then now they are kind of out of war. Now, uh, we have a problem with national identity. We have a linguistic problem. We don't know what uh, the word Belarus means. We don't really know what the language is. Now, do we have a national idea that can consolidate the nation? Well, in 2017, this is what Lukashenko said, 2017, like three years ago, he said, I calm down. I thought since society could not offer anything and I could not come up with anything, we live the way we live. We have no idea without this idea, although we would like to have one, but we don't have, we don't. I'm totally convinced it is impossible to invent it. So, Oh, almost 30 years of independence, we have no national idea, which is recognized officially in an interview by the president of the country, who has been in charge of this country for the last 26 years. So we have no national idea. And how can we consolidate the country around uh, you know, national idea if we don't have one? Now, going back to whether Belarusians are a nation, so there are two types of nations, actually. They can, it can be a civic nation, which is an association of people who have equal political rights, uh, certain uh, allegiances to political prestiges, and where society is formed on the basis of rights and laws. Um, or it can be an ethnic nation, which is based on um, ethnic ancestry, shared identity, and history. 
It should be mentioned that currently there are most states combined to some extent uh, civic and ethnic nationalism. So there are, I don't know if any fewer states exist that are, that are purely ethnic right now. Because in Europe, even very small states, they're still multinational. There are no states where just one nationality rules. Uh, but in Belarus, so we have such a huge problem with our ethnic identity, but we also have a problem with our civic um, identity. So I cannot really tell you what kind of um, uh, allegiance we have towards what's, what um, ideas, maybe what kind of ideology. So what unites us as a civic nation is difficult to say. We do have laws on paper, but do they actually work in any way? Um, so we are neither civic nor ethnic nation, but what is going on right now? Of course, Belarus 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union is a different country. And right now, there is an idea that we actually chose some kind of a third option. So we are, at the moment, we are neither pro-Russian, we don't have this nostalgia anymore, and very few people actually would like Belarus to become part of Russia. Uh, recent opinion polls show that only like 10% of the population would like to integrate with Russia to the point of being a part of Russia. So we don't want this. We, don't want, we want to be independent and sovereign state. But at the same time, we don't have this pro-Western ethnic nationalism uh, like other smaller states in uh, Eastern Europe. So this is also not our way. Um, what we do have, we have this civic nationalism which protects to an extent our sovereignty. We don't want to be uh, you know, gobbled up by Russia. Um, but without the total switch to the Belarusian language and without rejection of everything Russian. So we are okay with the Russian language. We're fine with that, with the Russian culture, with uh, the fact that we have no border with Russia. We can freely move back and forth. Uh, we get cheap oil and gas from Russia, which is also good. Russia is our huge market, our biggest market for our goods. Um, many people who live in Belarus, or who are citizens of Belarus, they live in Russia, they work there, they send money back to Belarus. So we are okay with that, but we don't want to be part of Russia. We want our independence. Now the question, does Belarus need democracy? I think it does, even though many people do not really understand how important that is. Um, it's important because autocracies, they create numerous problems, not only for their own citizens, but for people around them and the people in the world. Uh, in Belarus, for instance, if we talk about any types of freedoms, even like free market, free market in Belarus is a very different concept than it is in, 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 in the United States. We sort of have free market, but Lukashenko in his numerous um, election campaigns promised that the largest, the highest figure that he promised to the citizens of Belarus that we will be making per month, the average salary would be $1,000. That was his highest ever promise he made. Never reached that amount. Before and after that, he would promise $500 average salary, monthly salary mm -hmm. in Belarus. And right now, uh, I think if people, many people are making like $200 per month, they're very happy. Um, I might be mistaken, but I'm almost sure that, let's say, university professor in Belarus makes about like $300 per month. Uh, I don't think they make more than that. Even if they do, maybe it's like between three and 400, but that's highly unlikely. And that's after 28 years of Lukashenko being in charge, uh, being in power and ruling the country. So that's about talking about freedoms. We kind of have them, but you know, you cannot have really free market if there is planned economy still. 
So, and people do not understand that, that that's the problem of autocracies. Uh, but also in autocracies, democratic governance is not possible. There is no political pluralism. It's not tolerated in Belarus. We, for years and years, we have parliament where we're in which there was not a single opposition candidate. Only like five years ago, they, they let two people get there. But that was it. Uh, and that was just for the Western world to see. Oh, you see, we have opposition in our parliament. Our parliament, by the way, has not enacted a single law which Lukashenko personally didn't approve. So our parliament is, what, what are they doing there besides getting their salaries, I don't know. Because they, they do what, what he tells them. And he calls themselves the only politician in the country, which is true. Uh, so also in autocracies, institutions are often unaccountable and unresponsive. Belarusians don't care, so to say, about democracy, but they don't care until the moment that authorities comes after them, come after them, and then they realize there are no institutions, there is no rule of law that can protect them. There is nothing in place. Civil society is virtually non-existent or severely suppressed, which is the true effect uh, on the ground for Belarus. Elections outcomes are invariably rigged. This is uh, uh, like whoever heard at least once about Belarus knows that all our elections results are rigged. Um, but I don't think they're rigged from like 20% for Lukashenko up to 80. I think the majority still vote for him, maybe like 55%, maybe 60. But he likes what he calls elegant victories. So the final number is no less than 80% of the time. And I know that for sure from people who are in charge of election committees that they get a phone call and they are told what to put in their final report. So it doesn't matter uh, how people actually vote. Uh, and then again, power is exercised arbitrarily because the rule of law is not in place. So even if we don't understand that we need democracy, we do need it because this is what, this is what our reality is. So yes, we do. Question. Thank you.
although right now you cannot do it with force, uh, it's going to join, but you can. And this is how it happens. And so those kids in those uh, scarves, which are now green and red, just like our flag, would bring flowers to Lenin's statue on November 7th. So, and this is, this is official use of regulation. But it's for state, and it can exist. But if you try to create something which is uh, opposed to the state, then of course you will have a lot of problems. If, if, even if, if you are even allowed to exist. So yes, we do have two types of sales, uh, pro-government, pro-state, and anti-state, and anti-government. Yes. Thank you for your presentations. I know, uh, I know a lot about the, the history. And uh, you just mentioned about there was a gap between the intellectual and the peasant classes about mm -hmm. the uh, national identity. It's just to remind me the, the famous book, um, Second Time Times, written by Alexievich, um, the, the Nobel Prize winner. Mm -hmm. There was a really interesting um, details in this book. The last chapter was about uh, a college girl who been prison because he goes to Minsk to protest. But when she come back to her hometown, he noticed that there were a lot of neighbor boys was actually the, the police force who going to crash them. And they all um, supported Rukashenko and the regime. So it that indicate there was a conflict between the urbans and the countryside? And what if it happened? So what make it happen? Was, were there a major jeopardize for the uh, democratic uh, progress? Yes, thank you. Uh, well, if I understand your question correctly, so is there a conflict between the uh, rural areas and urban areas in terms of their support for the, for Lukashenko's government? Yeah. I don't think there is actually a conflict between specifically urban areas and rural areas. It's of course just in urban areas because there are universities, there are more young people who are maybe more advanced, maybe more progressive, so to say. But it doesn't mean that all our young people are like that. So there are many of them who would not go and protest because they know that they will be expelled from the university, so they're not just going anywhere. And um, as for the young people who go to the police, those are the people who will not uh, protest against Lukashenko, but they would join the police because Lukashenko needs his protection. So people who are part of the police, they get apartments, they get salaries, they get a lot of benefits. And uh, what happens, so when, when there were protests in, in, in Minsk in, what was it, 2009? Uh, so the police units were brought from other cities so that, uh, you know, when you live in Minsk and you are in the fort and you start beating, you know, Protestants, people may recognize you. And, you know, it's not that they worry too much that someone will uh, say that, how could you do that? But to uh, not have this situation, they would bring the police units from other places to Minsk so that they would be the ones to deal with the protesters. So I don't think it's a conflict between the rural areas and urban areas, it's just, um, uh, just the, the general situation that people just learned how to live in an authoritarian regime. They get used to it, and it doesn't mean that even if they are not happy with it, they are ready to fight against it. So those, some people fight, but many people who can afford this, they leave. They go to Europe, they go to the United States, they go to the university, and they just stay there, unless they really want to fight and go outside. Which is very dangerous. 
for nation building was but in, in 
That's a very good question because it's not actually that clear why the Soviet government at the in what was it 1918 1919 they all of a sudden decided to give uh, Belarusians their own so to say autonomy. So the policy of the Russian Empire was to create, uh, although the Russian Empire was a multinational state, but the idea was that the majority of the population there were, were ethnic Slavs. They were Russians, so the Slav triangle of uh, Russians, little Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians, or whoever the Slavs who lived there. Uh, and so the, the, the Soviet government just continued that policy because they wanted the Soviet Union to be a multinational country, but the, the base of it should, should have been Slavic. And they decided, okay, so there was some sort of fight for independence of Belarus in 1918 when they created this uh, Belarusian People's Republic. And they just, the, when the Bolsheviks came, I don't know for sure, but I think they just, you know, picked up what, what was there already. They just gave it a different name and decided, okay, now we have this Slavic triangle. We have Russians, we have Ukrainians, we have Belarusians. So the Soviet Union is a multinational state, but the core of that union is Slavic nation. And for many Russian people, Ukrainians are Russian, and we are also Russian, so they don't really see us as something separate. So that's why Ukrainians actually have so many problems now uh, and had before. So I think they just um, continued what already sort of existed there. And because Belarusians were not even recognized as a separate uh, nation and cultural unit until 1990. But it's a good question why Russia decided to do that. So we could have remained a province of Russia and that was, maybe we'd have less problems right now. I don't know. <laughs> yes, please. So my question was about the privatization. You kind of touched mm -hmm. on it in the previous answer. I wondered how much sure, but um, so uh, right now public sector in Belarus is smaller than it used to be you know, maybe 15 years ago, but for a long long time uh, the government, you know, the state controlled most of it, like up, up to 80% of um, the economy in Belarus was uh, public sector or sector of government sector and um, so why uh, we have relatively small private sector, although it's growing right now, because the state, personified by Lukashenko, they want to control everything. You know, if you have private enterprises, if you have private initiatives, those people might not comply. They might have their own interests, and he doesn't need any, anybody's own interests. He needs only his own interests, and maybe some state officials to support him. So the state official are, officials are kind of allowed to be corrupted until, like, sometimes he wakes up in the morning and decides, uh, I'm going to do it. Like, sometimes it happens. Okay, so now we need to show the public that we are fighting corruption. And some people go to jail. 
Uh, but the rest is still building their palaces, you know, and everybody knows that we cannot afford a house like that when we just get the salary of a state official, even though you make more money than maybe some poor professor at the university, but you cannot afford something like that. But he can control that. So, but right now the situation is changing uh, in terms of Belarus is a very, uh, how to say, IT country. So we know that the world of cancer is our creation. All the algorithms, all this comes from Belarusian, um, what do they call, programmers. And this is the sphere that the government cannot control. Because how do you control someone who is in front of their computer? If they don't like something, they will just move. They will go to the screen. And, uh, excuse me. And, and, and that will be it. So, and the government decided, okay, we cannot control it, let's leave it. So the IT sector right now in Belarus, they have a lot of um, like preferences and benefits and things like that, and those people are making a lot of money. Maybe they are the one who create the, uh, you know, the average salary of $500, because they're making it thousands of dollars. Um, but to your question whether the absence of uh, private initiative somehow connected with uh, the dire state of our civil society. It could be, because civil society, all those organizations, all this is um, based on trust and on specific interests. Because, you know, the state is supposed to represent everyone and take care of everyone and should not discriminate, uh, ideally. But civil society can discriminate. They can organize a group that promotes something very specific, some kind of specific interest or a very specific like minority group. So in this case, we are discriminating, but we can do that because we're part of civil society. We are about pluralism, we are about diversity. Um, so yes, when everything or the majority of uh, uh, economy became uh, was left in the hands of, of the state, then I would think that yes, there was like few opportunities for civil society to develop. Our civil society is mostly Whatever is active is a very nationalist kind of opposition. And because our national identity is so damaged, when they try to make people believe that we all need to switch to the Belarus language, or we all need to remember our ancient past from 500 years ago, it does not just resonate with the majority of the population. And people are actually looking with suspicion at those people who promote these ideas. But other than that, civil society is not even there. So it exists, but it's so weak and so invisible. And maybe, yes, you're right that, that this is one of the reasons. One more question. Maybe two more? Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, could you please speak a little more on the attitude of Lukashenko or official government's attitude towards this um, Polish heritage nationalism? Because I have a colleague uh, in Brazil University, and he's really into Searching his uh, attitude and uh, of, of yeah, Polish heritage and its importance in Belarusian identity. So, is there like official Lukashenko's view on this? Do you mean like Polish identity, meaning when we're talking about ethnic Poles, or uh, as Belarus being part at some time of the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth? The, the second one. Yeah. The second one. I'm actually right now working on an article with my colleague from the University of Delaware, so we're going to compare how the history of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is taught in secondary schools in Poland, Ukraine, and Belarus. 
And our hypothesis is that for the countries where the national identity, like in Belarus, is very weak and damaged, uh, more attention will be paid to that period. And I found out that in the seventh grade, in Belarus, in schools right now, the whole year, the whole entire year in history is devoted to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So we, we, we really believe that the Belarus is devoted to the whole year. But we think that in Poland, probably there will be less attention paid to it because Poles have not had any clear national identity. In Ukraine, the situation is different because there is Western Ukraine, there is Central Ukraine, and there is Eastern Ukraine. So their identity is quite split. So we think we might find differences depending on where this type of history is told. Um, I uh, don't think that Lukashenko himself is really worries about our national identity. Um, in terms of, uh, he doesn't speak Belarusian himself. He speaks Tsarsanta mostly, uh, but he's okay with that. Um, so um, I don't really remember him saying anything openly about that. So the history is told in schools. So I, I believe that means that we are kind of trying to build our new national consciousness uh, based on, on that history. But are we trying to really uh, raise uh, nationalists in, in that negative way? I don't think so, because Lukashenko wouldn't want to. So he is not very vocal about anything like that, but he is not really against. So okay, you teach history, okay, that's fine. But when Poles try to um, uh, promote their national Polish identity, because we have ethnic Poles in Belarus, so this is something he doesn't want. And when they try to organize in some kind of um, association to promote the Polish language, well now those who can prove that they have at least some Polish blood in them, they can go to Poland and study Polish universities. This is, or uh, uh, Catholic churches, all the priests, they are from Poland. Uh, so this is something that Lukashenko doesn't want. But it's not, I don't think that he sees it as some kind of threat to our Belarusian identity. It's just he sees something which he cannot control because it's a Catholic church, it's a different language, it's different nationality, and he sees some threat that Poles will somehow unite against Lukashenko himself, about his, uh, against his power, but not about him being a Belarus priest. So I know that that is your question. And there was one more question. like because this is what we came to after almost 30 years of our independence so we, we rejected that um, pro-western nationalism you know one nation one language one religion something like that or we don't want this uh, but on the other hand we do not um, see in Russia an enemy like the Baltic states for instance we never considered Russians as, an as occupiers who came and occupied our land and made us speak the Russian language. So um, we didn't like communism, but communists, but we didn't blame Russia for that. We felt sorry for them as well, because they also suffered from communists. So um, I think, yes, this third option, unless, of course, Lukashenko is not strong enough <laughs> to fight with Russia, because now they, uh, they're trying to make this integration deeper. But if we agree to what they want from us, then we are going to lose our sovereignty. So Lukashenko has to balance 
He knows that people do not want, and he doesn't want to lose his own power and become part of Russia. But on the other hand, we so much depend on Russia economically that if he doesn't find a way out and we don't get our usual cheap oil and gas, we might have a lot of problems with our economy. And when we have them, Lukashenko's power may be threatened. So for him right now, it's very difficult because he understands that we do not want to be part of Russia. And that's why I think that third option is something that is um, sustainable for us, at least for the near future, in the short um, remainder see what happens. I sometimes wonder what would happen if uh, Russia would do something like they did in Ukraine. And it seems to me that I don't think we would protest that much, that we would you know, take the arms and try to you know, defend our country. I think we would just submit. I might be wrong, but this is what my feeling is, that we would just, OK, fine. Now we're part of Russia. Well, hopefully we won't find out the answer to that question. Hopefully not. No, I, I, don't, I don't wish this to my, my world. I don't want this. I'm, I'm, I'm with the third option. I, I don't want uh, Belarus to become part of Russia. But I'm not against the national language. Well, thank you very much for a very <laughs>